We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. Launch team can no longer recycle the count. Sound suppressor water now flowing 15. under the ML. It's been five decades since go. humankind last visited the moon, but early this seven, Wednesday morning, six, the dream of staging five, a return trip finally got off the ground. Three, two, one. Boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, now that its first mission has achieved liftoff, we're going to take a closer look at the Artemis program. That's NASA's effort to bring astronauts back to the lunar surface within the next few years. So up ahead, we'll discuss what it's taken to get the program this far, and also what's going to set these missions apart from Apollo, our first round of trips to the moon. Then a bit later on, we'll also discuss why it is that even after all this time, the moon still holds plenty of mysteries. What we want to do is to look at the details of what the moon's surface is like and what the moon's interior is like. And for that, it's good to be on the surface and not just up in space. First up, though, we're going to try to get our bearings in this brand new age of space exploration. For that, I spoke earlier with Tarek Malik. He's the editor-in-chief of the Space.com news site. We started off talking about the current mission, Artemis 1, an uncrewed flight designed to test out key technologies and pave the way for future trips. Here's that conversation. Tarek Malik, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Hey, thanks for having us. Very excited to be here. Yeah, so an exciting week all in all for uh, anybody who's a space enthusiast. It appears that the launch was a successful start to this mission, and by now uh, the spacecraft has made it a good chunk of the way to the moon. Uh, But this is a program that has had a number of false starts already, and uh, you got to see that for yourself firsthand. You tried to make it to the uh, first two launches, which uh, ended up both being false starts. Yeah, you know, it's been a long road. 
uh, for Artemis 1 and NASA's Space Launch System rocket and the Orion spacecraft. And uh, delays are something that NASA's pretty familiar with. It's plagued this mission uh, since they tried to roll it out to the launch pad uh, in April of this year. We saw that with um, the two false starts, uh, a, a, an, an engine temperature leak and and a, 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 a fuel leak that, that thwarted those. And the, this launch, you know, was really in doubt because there was a hurricane that hit Florida uh, just a week before and damaged the rocket. They had to send um, uh, inspectors out just before to make sure that it was okay enough to launch. And even during the countdown, I had to send three, um, three technicians out to tighten down some bolts to stop a leak caused by that hurricane while this rocket was fully, fully fueled. So it was just amazing that they were able to finally get through all of those issues. And it's a testament to the decade or so plus that they had put into this rocket, uh, the, the most powerful that NASA has ever built, uh, and that, that to get it off the ground uh, despite those challenges uh, really just kind of, it kind of shows that they, they did they, they did the work and, uh, and, and they were able to, to see the, the returns on that uh, with this launch. Well, yeah, I mean, on the on the flip side of that, though, I think for a lot of listeners, it's probably also a testament to the fact that, you know, we, we did manage to make it to the moon 50 years ago. Here we are uh, five decades later, and still space travel remains very difficult. This is, you know, it has, it, it's difficult to get up to the moon for a reason. We weren't kidding around uh, back five decades ago. So uh, for anybody who has not been following this program closely and has maybe lost the thread on all of this, especially with all of these false starts, explain to us why are we going back to the moon, given all these difficulties, given how hard it is? Why is Artemis a program that we're talking about now? Why is it taking place? Well, you know, NASA has been stuck in low Earth orbit for the last uh, 40 years. The uh, The whole plan uh, from the Apollo uh, program was to keep going, to build uh, a permanent space station. We have that now with the International Space Station to build uh, a base on the moon and to get astronauts to Mars. NASA has had a, a lot of challenges getting there. Just the development of this rocket alone uh, kind of shows how how tricky that is. And uh, they have a, a new goal now to to really not just go and land and then come home and then not go back again. They want to go to the moon to stay, to set the um, the stage that they need to get astronauts to Mars, basically to learn not just about uh, the moon and, and it's, it's different places. You know, during the Apollo era, we didn't know that there was water on the moon. We didn't know that there was uh, other uh, resources that astronauts could use to survive. Uh, they know that now and they think they can use that stuff at Mars as well, but they don't want to, uh, they don't want to make that leap without testing it all in the relatively uh, close neighborhood of the moon. The more that, they, that NASA can reveal about the moon, the more we learn about how our planet formed, what makes it uh, a bit uh, uh, a bit more conducive to life than the rest of the places that we see in our, our solar system. You know, the moon is uh, very singular in its nature in our solar system. Our planet's the only one with a big one, like what we see. And knowing wh- why that is, what it's made out of, how it's different than both our Earth the other uh, planets and satellites that we see around our solar system can really set that story about how our solar system evolved and maybe how, how life on our planet uh, was affected by that. Speaking with Tarek Malik, once again, editor-in-chief of Space.com, talking about the Artemis program and the ongoing Artemis 1 mission as the Orion spacecraft makes its long, long journey to the moon, and it's uh, going to circle around the moon uh, for a little bit before it comes back. Uh, wh- what is, what's it going to be doing while it's up there? Uh, it sounds like there's a little bit more going on in this mission than what happened in Apollo. Yeah, this is really a shakedown cruise of 
the art the the space launch system and Orion uh, spacecraft. Now, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the space launch system NASA's new moon rocket is more powerful than the Saturn V rockets that uh, we may that we're all familiar with. It's designed to carry. Uh, much larger payloads. The Orion spacecraft itself is about 30% larger. It's it's bigger. It can hold more people uh, and more experiments than um, uh, than the Apollo capsule too. So for this mission, it's really going to test, A, does that rocket work? We know that now because we've all seen the launch uh, and it was a stunning nighttime launch. And then B, will the spacecraft actually keep astronauts safe when they go to and from the moon? That's what this is. It's a, it's a transport ship to get to the moon. NASA will plan to have another ship uh, SpaceX's Starship to land astronauts on the moon uh, when they when they when they need it. Uh, during this flight, there are cameras all over it. We've already seen stunning views of the Earth from Orion, uh, uh, fifty you know to seventy thousand miles away from Earth uh, as as it was uh, a day after launch. And they're going to be tracking that. You know, how is the spacecraft performing? Is the temperature right? Are the systems performing right? Uh, is the environment inside? habitable for astronauts. Inside the spacecraft, meanwhile, there is a, a spacesuit clad dummy. His name is Munikin Kepos. <laughs> and he is wearing a uh, a version of the, the new spacesuit that astronauts will wear on uh, on these trips to the to the moon. Uh, and NASA wants to know there, you know, what was the vibration like on that that mannequin? Uh, what is the temperature like? Uh, was the life support working uh, during that that whole thing uh, to to understand what the human body is going to be subjected to? Sitting behind that uh, that Munikin are two torsos. They both have their names. Uh, um, I think one is Olga, if memory if memory serves, uh, and and they are designed to study the impact of radiation on the human body. They've got uh, many many sensors on them. One of them is wearing a radiation uh, vest. The other one is not. And this is because the environment around the moon has a much higher radiation uh, uh, component than the astronauts that are living and working on the space station in low Earth orbit right now. And if we're going to send astronauts to live at the south pole of the moon, build a base, stay there for weeks uh, or a month at a time, uh, we want to know what that what that stress is going to be because at Mars, the radiation environment is even harsher. There is no magnetic field as, like there is at Earth uh, to, to protect astronauts. So they really need to know what are those risks for astronauts. Uh, and at the same time, there's a, a series of, of biomedical experiments aboard uh, the, the spacecraft. There's some seeds as well to study how things change uh, for the human body over time. That's going to be a key thing. But the big test for this mission comes at the end, and that is uh, to make sure that Orion can safely return to Earth. Now that right now is set for December 11th, uh, and it will test basically this heat shield, this this largest heat shield that NASA's made for a capsule of this type to make sure that it can survive the harsh uh, heat, the searing hot temperatures of reentry when it comes scre uh, screaming into the Earth's atmosphere at 25,000 miles an hour uh, and prove that it can basically land safely with its astronauts after sending them to the moon. Those are the, the big tests for this flight. Well, we should mention that there's a bit of a Bay Area connection right there. NASA Ames uh, helped to make that heat shield, or they uh, created the heat shield. Uh, so, so some uh, Bay Area bragging rights, at least. That's right. You know, this, the heat shield would not be possible uh, if uh, if they if the folks at Ames and their ArcJet facility hadn't proven that it was strong enough to withstand it. I would also point out too um, that there is a project on this uh, on this mission. Uh, called BioSentinel that uh, scientists at the Ames Research Center there have, have developed to kind of study how yeast 
grows in space hmm. and to use it as a model organism uh, to study how DNA breaks down from that radiation environment in space. And that is that is another uh, another way that uh, uh, that the, the Bay Area is kind of reaching all the way to the moon uh, for this flight. Uh, it's actually on a CubeSat uh, called BioSentinel that uh, was deployed shortly after launch, and it's just on its way out there in space now. Yeah, well, uh, just... Just hearing you lay that all out, it, it does sound like there is a, a lot of exciting work that uh, is going to be done, a lot of exciting projects that are soon going to come to fruition. But let's end out on where this is all headed, because this is Artemis 1. In a couple of years, we're hoping to launch Artemis 2, which is going to be a crewed flight that will not land on the moon, but it'll circle the, the moon. And then further down the road, we'll have Artemis 3, which will be man's return to the moon, or I suppose we should now say humankind's return to the moon. Uh, we only have a minute or two left, but just from your perspective, how how hopeful should we be that this is all going to deliver on the promise of a, of, of a return to the moon? Obviously, there's some huge technical challenges ahead. How much are we going to learn from this mission? What should we be looking out for beyond that? I think the fact that Orion and, and, and the space launch system got Artemis 1 into space should give us all a lot more hope mm. that we are finally going to see not just a temporary uh, set of missions to go walk on the moon, plant some flags. NASA wants to put, of course, the first woman on the moon, the first person of color on the moon for this program. Uh, I saw the hardware for Artemis 2, for Artemis 3 at the Kennedy Space Center when I was there. NASA is building that. They've set orders for up to Artemis 9 uh, you know, to, to really keep that exploration uh, going. They've ordered three moon landers from SpaceX, uh, one test and, and two to land astronauts. So it's not a one-off program, it seems. And it seems like they've, they've got a pipeline to keep this deep space exploration going for the foreseeable future, something that we did not see during Apollo. And I think that's something that can really uh, get the future of our space program, our future scientists, our future uh, roboticists, our future technology entrepreneurs, uh, get them really excited uh, for what's to come. All right. Well, that's an, an exciting vision of perhaps our space exploration future. Uh, a lot to look forward to. And uh, as we've been saying, a, a lot more to learn. We have been speaking one last time to Tarek Malik, the editor-in-chief of Space.com, also the co-host of This Week in Space. That's a podcast on the Twit Network. Tarek Malik, thanks so much. Thanks a lot. This is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today in the program, we're marking the launch of the Artemis One mission and talking about the future of space science and space exploration. So with our gaze now firmly set up towards the stars, we're going to continue the conversation with frequent KCBS guest, Andrew Fracknoy. He's Emeritus Chair of Foothill College's Astronomy Department, who currently teaches at the Fromm Institute at the University of San Francisco. Andrew Fracknoy, welcome back onto KCBS In-Depth. It's nice to be back with you. So with all this space exploration that's going to be going on in the years ahead and in the, the days ahead now, hoping you could give us some more perspective on what there is to learn from it all, you know, what we still have to learn about our solar system. Uh, meantime, of course, there's also lots of interesting new discoveries that are taking place uh, beyond our little corner of the cosmos, especially uh, with the recent launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. So uh, we can touch on that a bit later, too. But uh, to get us started, let's talk first about the moon. Uh, we've been there before. 
been there, done that. Uh, but it sounds like there's still a lot more that we don't know about our closest neighbor in our solar system. What are we hoping further exploration still has to teach us? Well, one of the things we're still not very sure about is why we have a moon at all. Um, in our neighborhood of the solar system, planets don't have moons. Mercury doesn't have a moon. Venus doesn't have a moon. Mars has a, two tiny asteroids that it's captured, but that's not the kind of moon you bring home to mom with pride. <laughs> and so it's odd that the Earth among all those planets has a moon. And we think an accident was responsible for this. We think very early in the uh, history of the solar system, when there were many other smaller planets flying around and everything was getting organized, the Earth got hit by one of these mini planets and the material sheared off by that collision eventually went into orbit around the Earth and formed the moon. But the details are lost in, in history, and we don't fully understand what happened, and we're not quite sure how much of the moon is Earth material, how much of the moon came from this uh, impactor that hit us. So we'd like to learn more about both the origin of the moon, but also the history of the moon. Because the nice thing about the moon is that whatever happened to the moon must have happened to the Earth. Hmm. On Earth, a lot of the records of early impacts have been erased because we have a thick atmosphere where things burn up. We have oceans that er erode everything. The moon doesn't have either of those. It doesn't have an atmosphere. It doesn't have any water or liquid water anyway. And so whatever hits the moon is preserved there for billions of years. And so in a sense, the moon is a Rosetta Stone. Mm. It's, a, it's an ancient record that tells us what also happened to the Earth, but here has been erased. Yeah, so uh, definitely a, a window into our solar system's past uh, with a lot of answers to tell us. But why do we actually need to return to the surface itself? Uh, wh what, what changes when we're actually able to make those observations up close and personal rather than from here on Earth? Well, and, and that's really a good question. And I have to say, as an astronomer, while it's absolutely crucial that we get to the surface to get rocks, to maybe dig down and find out what's below the surface layers, there's really no requirement that people have to do this. Um, mm. People are much more expensive and fragile. Mm. Uh, they, they need care and feeding, right? Um, whereas, yeah. whereas robots can do this for much less cost. So we as astronomers, uh, see the the people on the moon program as mostly political rather than scientifically required. And don't tell them that. Uh, right, right. Um, we 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 astronomers don't have as much influence there as the the politicians yeah. do. But whether it's people or robots, what we want to do is to look at the details of what the moon's surface is like and what the moon's interior is like. And for that, mm. it's good to be on the surface and not just up in space. All right. So getting into the nitty gritty details of what exactly is in the lunar surface, one of the uh, questions that we could be answering in the years ahead. But we're also hearing plenty of talk about the future Artemis missions, maybe laying the, the groundwork for exploration further 
uh, out into our solar system as well, maybe a future mission to Mars, a manned mission to Mars. We've had, well, robotic missions to Mars, quite a few of them uh, already. What more do you think that there is to learn uh, about Mars at this point? Mars is a fascinating world. Let me tell you the biggest thing we've learned from all those robotic missions. What we now understand is that ancient Mars was radically different from Mars today. Mm. Today, Mars is a dry world with a thin atmosphere. Water cannot be liquid on its surface. The pressure is too low, so it evaporates. But we now know that ancient Mars was much more like the Earth. It had a thick atmosphere. Water could easily flow and pool on its surface. So we think there were rivers and seas on Mars billions of years ago. And if that's true, that's the kind of place where life could begin. It began under those circumstances on Earth. And if Mars was similar to Earth long ago, life there could have begun independently. And even today, where Mars is much more hostile, some of the fossils, some of the evidence of that ancient Martian life could be preserved and retrieved. And that's what we're doing on Mars. NASA has a, a motto, follow the water. Where there was water, there might have been life. And already we're starting to get samples. The, the current mission, the current rover on Mars is actually putting samples into little aluminum tubes for future retrieval. But going to Mars, following the water and seeing if we can find ancient life's fossils is one of the most exciting things in all of science. Because if life could start on Mars separate from Earth, then it could start in other places as well. And that would be very exciting to know that, that, that life on Earth was not some unique event, but something that could happen in other places, then the planets around other stars could also have life like plants and animals and KCBS listeners and so on. Well, we, could, we could use the, uh, the demo bump. So a uh, key demographic that we're going to get in the, the century ahead, I'm sure. I uh, want to introduce you once again, speaking with Andrew Fracknoy, again, the Emeritus Chair of Foothill College's Astronomy Department. Let's talk about the James Webb Space Telescope that uh, was launched last year and began sending pictures back to us over the summer. Obviously, there was an awful lot of excitement about just how clear those images that we were getting uh, are. You know, uh, we saw the the White House post the first one, and then we got a lot more. And they were an improvement over even what we'd been getting from the Hubble. And, of course, that was state-of-the-art in its time. So uh, now you astronomers have had uh, quite a few months to process the this first batch of images. What's the upshot from it all? What's been most exciting for you? Well, here's the thing about the James Webb Space Telescope. It's not only much bigger and more advanced than the Hubble, so it can see fainter things. It has completely different eyes, if I can put it that way. The mm. eyes of the Hubble, the telescope that is the Hubble, was sensitive mostly to the same light that our eyes perceive, visible light, as we call it. But the James Webb Telescope is, is designed to observe invisible light, light that our eyes can't see, but our instruments can. In everyday life, we call the, these, these types of light infrared light or heat rays 
because we humans give it off at our temperature. If you could see the glow that your body gives off, if you had infrared glasses, you would see yourself glowing with your own heat. And that heat glow is what the James Webb Telescope is, is looking for. And so we can see things out there that are too cold to give off visible light. They're not like uh, the stars, which are hot. So what can we see? We can see the raw material from which stars and planets are born. We can detect the atmospheres of planets orbiting other stars. We can see the nurseries where young stars hide out as they're getting warmer and warmer and warmer and turning into suns. And the ability to see colder things and different things to have a completely different view of the universe is something we've been longing for all these years. We've had small telescopes looking at heat rays, but nothing that can really give us a great view. And now we have it in the James Webb Space Telescope. And just briefly, I mean, the upshot is now we can see portions of the cosmos that we couldn't see before, and we can see further back in time into the history of the cosmos than we could before? That's right. We're already seeing these star nurseries in exquisite detail. We're learning more about how stars are born and what happens in the process of making planets like the Earth. But even more exciting in some ways, as you say, uh, this telescope enables us to look further out into space. And the further out you look, the longer ago you are seeing, because light takes a while to move through the universe. Hmm. So the longer, the, the further out uh, your object is, the longer it takes for the light to reach us. And with this telescope, we're seeing galaxies, we're seeing islands of stars as they were 13 billion years ago when the universe was first getting organized. And that's a great aim uh, of, our, of our exploration, is to see not just the origins of our planet and of our star, but the origin of galaxies, the origin of structure in the universe. And this is our best bet for doing that. Yeah, well, just uh, it's... Nothing like staring up into the stars to make you feel like a tiny little speck. Um, but I can also imagine a lot of folks, you know, looking at the price tag of the Artemis missions and thinking, at the end of the day, how practical is all this, uh, given everything that's happening right here down on Earth? W what do you say to that? How This is something that our government, NASA, has made a commitment to in the years ahead. It's something that we're going to be talking about for many years to come. How do you keep the public interested in this uh, over time? Famously, the public, just a few years after the first landing on the moon, the, the TV ratings for the future landings dropped precipitously. So we, we, we do have a, a short attention span here down on Earth. How do you keep people engaged? Well, I think this is a, a complex issue. And I think one of the ways you do that is by looking at what we can learn and the drama of it. It's, it's sort of like a family budget. If you spent your family budget only on the absolute necessities, it's, it's, it's great, but it's not as good as putting a little money aside each year for a vacation. You want something to relieve your mind from the daily troubles. And in the same way, we, no one's advocating we put uh, all our budget into astronomy. But that little part of the budget that we spend on exploring the universe is like taking a vacation, like freeing your mind to look at the bigger issue. 
I, I think many of us are, are incredibly tired of the political back and forth right now that's paralyzing our country. And it's nice to get uh, above that question, yeah. literally, yeah. and to look back at things like, how did we get here? And are there other creatures like us wondering about the universe? And how, what was the, the origin of the organization in the universe? These are the kind of things that free your mind from daily concerns and I think are very exhilarating to think about. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, an inspiring set of questions. And maybe, just maybe, uh, we just gave you your anecdotes that you can share over your uh, Thanksgiving dinner with your family, everybody. So I uh, hope you were all taking notes. We have been getting that inspiring vision of the cosmos from Andrew Fracknoy, one last time Emeritus Chair of Foothill College's Astronomy Department, currently teaching at the Fromm Institute at the University of San Francisco. And if you want to find more of his work, including his blog, you can travel on over to fracknoy.com. That is F-R-A-K-N-O-I dot com. Fracknoy dot com. Andrew Fracknoy, pleasure as always. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll talk again next week. You've been listening to KCBS In Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 